Tonight's very special. It's uh, one of our uh, series of M talks, um, and this one is presented by La Trobe University. Uh, La Trobe University also did events uh, here on the weekend. Um, they did their Asian Studies um, group, uh, did a series of uh, dance performances and uh, exercises and Tai Chi and henna painting, which was fabulous. But tonight we're going. Uh, Andrew Butt from La Trobe is going is presenting a group uh, of experts in the field and urban planning um, on this topic of suburbanism. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks. Um, I might just ask the panel members to come up too. I promise there'll be no dancing or henna painting. Um, but if you can come up and, I'll, uh, Michelle, if you can grab a chair here and Peter in the middle, and Trevor and Harry, you can fight it out at the end. Um, just introduce ourselves. So I'll, I'll just quickly introduce what we want to talk about tonight and then I'll introduce the panel. And hopefully we can talk, do some provocative talking for a while and have some chances and questions and discussion. So what, what interested us today in our panel was to try and think about what it is that we can learn from Asian urbanism, particularly South Asian urbanism, which fits, fits with this year's theme. But we wanted to twist that around and think, what does it mean for Australia and for Australian cities? And particularly, what does it mean if you go about making transnational culture and particularly cultures in Australian suburbia, urban cultures in Australia? How does that work? How are we seeing it work? And how can that be conducted in ways that we can imagine the way we want our cities to be in the future, particularly if we're thinking about issues of sustainability, of community life, of engagement um, across the city, in particular a city like Melbourne, which is growing ever larger. So the panel I have with me to talk about these issues is Michelle Lobo from Deakin University, who researches in the area, and she can explain that later, researches in the area of looking at, at uh, immigrant cultures and Australian urban life. Professor Peter Newman from Curtin University, who's a professor of sustainability and has a long publishing history in areas of looking at sustainable transport and other issues around sustainability in cities around the world. Harry Fisher, who's a, a new fellow, um, it, a research fellow at La Trobe University who's here on the India Australia Foundation Fellowship, we can explain if I've got that wrong, has recently been working in Hyderabad looking at rural livelihoods, and I'm very keen to think about the transition to urban livelihoods and what that means in South Asia. Um, and Trevor Hogan, who's the, um, convener, the director of the Philippine-Australian Studies Centre and a, and a sociologist at La Trobe University who also does work in, in urbanism in Asia and South Asia, include, including South Asia. So I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to press them for... Um, their answers when I don't think they're good enough. Um, but I'm going to give them a chance to speak for a few minutes each. And I'm actually going to start with you, Trevor, to talk to us a bit about what you see as the fundamental way we should think about urbanisation, which we, we consider to be quite a, an interesting and global phenomena. We know it's different in different places, but we have these sort of phrase, glib phrases about global urbanisation, about planetary urbanism. Yet we also know that when we think of the way that urbanisation occurs, it's obviously very different in different places, materially and culturally. And I want Trevor to maybe introduce some of those ideas about what we're seeing as different ways of being urban in different places and how that uh, translates to how culture is made when groups come transnationally, particularly from Asia to Australia. So how long have we got to answer that question? Well, you know, <laughs> five or so minutes. Okay. I'm... Uh... I'm like the uh, support band in a night when you come to see another band, but I come on first. So if you want to throw anything at me, then I understand. I get I get the, the gesture. I'm not a, actually an expert on South Asian urbanism as such. I have um, 
travelled extensively uh, to most of the major cities and regions on the subcontinent. Um, and I've read a lot, but that doesn't make me an expert. I'm really an outsider who likes to do some grand theorising about the long patterns of world urbanisation over the last three or four centuries. We all know that the South Asian subcontinent is actually the source of long sustained urbanisms um, up to 10,000 years ago, the first major cities around the, the northwestern section of South Asia. And we have cities like Lahore and Delhi and so on, which have had many cities built on the same site across the centuries. So it's not as if they're not short of ideas about what creates good cities, livable cities, interesting forms of urbanism. But in the last three or four centuries, I think it's true to say that the patterns of cultural and technology transfer as making cities has started in a little corner of northwest Europe, particularly in the UK. And you see major patterns of industrialization of patterning of cities where intense urbanization has taken place within decades, where were previously small villages or no cities at all. Uh, have sprung up. And those patterns of urbanism were largely made up on the spot as they were going along and made lots of mistakes. <laughs> Terrible housing, poor sanitation, poor infrastructure, uh, gross inequality, terrible pollution, unlivable, unsustainable. Sound familiar? Well, this is the patterning that has been copied right around the world. And with it comes an imaginary amongst the working classes and the social liberals of anti-urbanism. The first urban social reform movements of Western Europe, and particularly England, come out of this horrible experience of the industrial city. So most of the forms of thinking about sustainability, livability, socialism, social liberalism, ecology, all come out of this moment of intense industrial cities. So I would argue that the first wave of urban reform comes with an anti-urban pedigree, a romantic anti-city movement, and ironically actually makes cities better. And so then, largely speaking, that's the story of the 19th century, and you can look at the patterning of the making of Australian cities, the colonial cities around the ports, is initially some fairly ordinary Victoriana with, for the poor, some grand Victoriana for the rich, cheek and jowl to each other. With the development of technologies of public transport, especially rail, you see the expansion and the creation of suburban forms of living. So I would argue that the 20th century has been marked by a transatlantic story of cultural and technological transfers. Chicago and LA represent the two moments of greatest urban innovations, particularly technologically. Chicago in the 1890s has a remarkable range of technologies which are designed for city living. Not least, the invention of the skyscraper made possible by steel, compressed concrete, plate glass windows, the incandescent lights, electricity, uh, what else? Elevators, a whole spray painting, 
a whole range of technologies all within the space of five to ten years, which has an explosive impact on what is possible in the making of cities. So you could argue that Chicago and, and to a lesser extent New York are the last European cities and the first modern American cities. But it's LA that provides the great template for cultural and technological transfers for Australia. It's the suburban writ large in the suburban urban imaginary. What are the key technologies that we need for the material cultures of suburbia? The freezer, the motor car, aircon, shopping malls. These are the forms of living which are shared, doesn't matter where we live, around the world today. They're ubiquitous and they're taken for granted. They have become naturalised as if this is the, the stuff in which we make cities. We don't have to think about it. But they actually carry cultures with them. And oil is the key energy source for these cities. So Australia is arguably the most radical on a per capita basis, the most radical experimenter in the suburban and urban imaginary. So you get the industrial urbanism, you get the anti-urbanism, the creation of suburbia, and now I would argue that the great movement of cultural and technological transfers is crossing the Pacific Ocean and into the Indian Ocean is hyper-urbanism. So you see the rise of the modern megacity, cities of 20 to 25, 30 million people, and growing fast still. Right across Asia, you're seeing the most radical experiments in 21st century urbanism, using all the technologies of Chicago and LA wrapped into one. So you've got skyscraper districts, you've got informal settlements of, you know, that are highly dense as well. You get uh, the freeways crossing and connecting the cities as a whole. And then you get the suburban phenomena of more intensely dense versions of gated communities, rich and poor. Experiments and new city building inside the megalopolis. So you get a whole series of archipelagos all living alongside each other. So, what's the story for the South Asia? You would have to say that the Industrial Revolution is not that significant for India. Let's say India is shorthand. Just as it wasn't that significant for the city building in Australia either. We were both post-industrial economies, if you like. What was remarkable about India is also the resilience of indigenous forms of city making, despite the presence of the British for sustained periods of time and the British imposing logics of modern forms of urban planning. And you see synergies and, and overlaps and rejections and adaptations going on. The second thing that's remarkable in the 20th century is that both Gandhi and Nehru shared a common prejudice in favour of agrarian development over and against the city. So whereas Nehru was the great national moderniser, arguably Gandhi goes back to the idea of uh, kind of alternative craft making forms of the valuation of the village as the ultimate good life, the utopia of an agrarian settled society. Both those anti-urbanisms dominate the national imaginary and the nation state building project for the last arguably 50 years, 60 years. It's only in the last 20 years that you see the opening up to rapid modernization of the cities in terms of the logics that I've described already. So you get a hyper-urbanism happening 
rapid, it's almost like a um, conflation of the processes that started in Europe in the late 18th century, early 19th century in England, the multiplication of those processes at the same time as Chicago and LA logics being integrated into the megacities. Now that overlays all sorts of indigenous knowledge, design logics, imaginaries about what the good life is, and what we're seeing is unique forms, particular forms of cities. And it's unpacking all those cultural and technological imaginaries that's so fascinating in trying to understand the peculiar pathway that the subcontinent has taken in cities. So that, I think I've said enough. Yeah. There is some interesting things to say about the, the cultural and technological transfers between Australia and India, but that can, that can wait for another time. I was going, well, thanks, Trevor. I, I suppose what interests me then is to think you, you're talking about particularly megacities, which, which comprise what we'd see as new technologies, but also hmm. habits from you know, upcountry habits, formations of informal, uh, informal natures, of, of highly formalised and internationalised processes. I wonder if we can ask then Peter to comment on what, what can possibly be sustainable about the megacities of Asia, what can possibly be sustainable about the, the rapid growth cities of Australia, uh, and is it is it at the hyper growth end? Is it at the informal end? Um, and how can that actually include communities in that process? Yeah, um, it's a pretty remarkable summary of uh, civilization there in eight minutes, uh, Trev. <laughs> and uh, I'm uh, uh, I'm inspired to uh, to see how what I was going to say could fit that. But essentially, sustainability is saying what is next in that grand drama of human beings and cities and that we've um, we're in a 21st century paradigm now where the sustainability is saying you can't keep going the way you've been doing much as they did in the 19th century with with the terrible pollution and hygiene and so on so it is saying and a lot of people say, we've got to stop this growth. We've got to stop these cities. They're, they're just terrible. They're, they're ruining the planet because that's where most of the coal and the oil and gas are, are consumed. Um, so there is a degrowth movement uh, in sustainability. But you take a different view. I do. I uh, have um, always thought that this was... That growth is about opportunities. People come to cities because of opportunities. And the green opportunity is how to now reshape these cities in a way that is not using coal, oil and gas. We have to have solar cities. We have to have different forms of transport. We have to have uh, cities that can, can be part of the planet in a, in a way that enables us to go on because we can't keep going the way we've been going. Sustainability is saying no more. So we have to change. And that process is done through growth. You cannot achieve anything if you just say, we're going to stop, because you'll just stop in what you've been doing and go backwards. So tapping into growth is, is the big agenda and changing it. So I've, got to, I've just come in from Perth and uh, we've had a big growth spurt. It was a boom. The rest of the world really was uh, stuttering along through the GFC and we had a mining boom and 500,000 people came to Perth in seven years. And what happened 
we had, we di it's not as though there was a lot of government leadership on this, but civil society has for some time said we, what we want in Perth and, and the business community as well. So in seven years, 25% of Perth households bought rooftop solar. That is now the biggest power station in Western Australia. 550 megawatts coming from the sun. Not planned. It worked really well. You don't hear about this. You only hear about how Adelaide's stuffing up everything because it put 40% wind power in and, <laughs> and caused a, a cyclone. Um, <laughs> you know, quite stupid because actually that inquiry found that it was a couple of gas-fired turbines that didn't get turned on that caused the problem. But in Perth, it, it's been terrific because the rooftop solar just works exactly where you are. I mean, you're getting batteries and so on now to, to supplement it. So the government has now realised, the Conservative government, that coal is on the way out. You can buy a coal-fired power station that they renewed, regenerated for the boom time because we're wealthier, we're, we're going to use more power, and we didn't. You can buy that for a dollar. Cost 500 million to, to fix up, and they never even turned it on. So this, the phasing out of coal is well underway in that city. Not planned, but it's happening. Well, but what about in resource, what about in resource stretched, high growth Asian? You know, ah, you've written yeah. about South Asian cities, and yeah, there's a well, there's a tension there about sure. the, the levels of growth. There, there's no doubt that the and, and the problems that I mostly deal with are about transport and traffic is, is appalling uh, in, in South Asian cities. So we got a grant from AusAid and Australia India Council to, go, to work on sustainable transport and deliberative democracy. The idea was, can we get something that will get grassroots approaches to changing traffic issues? Now, traffic is terrible because there are 58 different types of things allowed on roads in, in Indian cities from elephants and cows and auto taxis and pedestrians who walk on the roads, not on the footpath, because that's where all the hawkers are and you've got no space. So all of that problem, it's not exactly what we have, but what we have is a, a democratic tradition, perhaps from the British, perhaps longer in cultural matters than that, but certainly a belief that you can bring about change if you get people involved in it. So that's what we did, and we made a film of it, which you can see on YouTube. It's called Taming the Streets. It's had 20,000 hits or whatever, and, and it's, it's actually a very interesting thing because what we found was that the deliberative process is in a day you could bring everybody together, all the hawkers and the, and the uh, people responsible for traffic planning and... And, and businessmen and the community NGO groups and local politicians, and at the end of the day, come up with a decision on what to do, and they would do it. It was extraordinary how quickly you could get this democratic process to work, and it was something that I feel we share, that, um, that belief in change that can come by bringing people together. Um, the other thing that they're doing now Modi is an urbanist. Modi is not in that, that uh, Gandhian tradition. Um, and he has said, I, we are going to fund 52 metros. 
across all the Indian cities. So any city over a million is getting a metro. Now metros are dramatically able to go around the traffic, over the traffic, under the traffic and enable people to, to quickly get there. In, in China, they're building 86 metros. So Beijing now has 9 million people a day on their, met, their metro, a day. And in Shanghai, 8 million a day. They built that in 10 years. Those metros are dramatically changing Asian transport. They're electric, they can tap into the sun, and they are now, both Beijing and Shanghai, have this phenomenon of peak car, where all the developed cities of the world are going down in car use per capita, and in some total, because people are moving to public transport and moving back into the cities. So that's the other thing that happened in Perth during that period. 30,000 people moved into the city centre. We've never had a lively city centre before. So growth can actually achieve those changes that you need. And you have to tap that, but you have to enable it as well. And in Asian cities, there's no doubt they're going to show us how to do public transport. You know, we've done a few tram extensions and things, and we're constantly sort of trying to get on, on top of our traffic, but we don't do much about it. They're getting on with it there. Mm. They're dramatic changes. In this era, the 21st century, they're saying, we can't keep going like we did before. We're going to remake our cities. So, Harry, I might ask you a question which relates to that, which is we're seeing still hundreds of millions of people who aren't urban in India, for example, and but we're seeing livelihood transitions even when people aren't in urban conditions. So, so urbanisation of the sort we're seeing in, in South Asia and lots of the world isn't really necessarily about people making moves physically to cities or living in places with better infrastructure and better public transport, but we're seeing transitions in livelihoods to urban conditions. And that, that in itself has risks for people's livelihoods, for community life and for the sustainability of existing modes of, uh, of work and economy. In, in your own work, can you reflect on how you've seen those processes of aspiration and actual change occurring. Yeah, sure, I can comment on that. Adjust this, though. I think it was made for a slightly shorter person. Um, yeah, well, I come at this from a very different perspective. I, um, I'm a human geographer that works uh, almost exclusively in rural areas, in fact. I actually don't know too much about cities. Um, but what I do know, actually, is something about the way people in rural areas think about and interact with the idea of what urban means. And I think that um, there are a lot of, um, it's true that there are a lot of uh, communities where there isn't necessarily um, a, a tremendous, you know, you don't necessarily go to the city, you're not, your aspirations aren't necessarily to be living in a city, but they're often and I think in most villages in rural India, pr a pretty uh, significant exchange and transfer of, of, um, uh, of, of people, of resources, of labor, of ideas and aspirations between the rural and the urban. And I think to a large degree, that is, um, uh, that's something that is very fundamental to understand, that needs to be understood and analyzed to understand what rural India 
actually means in terms of development in the present era. Uh, I've been working in an area of the middle Himalayas in the state called Himachal Pradesh for the past eight years or so. I've been working in um, some villages and some provincial towns. And I think one of the big stories about urbanization in South Asia and elsewhere in the world is actually the growth of these small provincial cities that are in this process of transformation. They're not quite these large metropolitan areas that that we may think of, in, for example, Delhi or Bombay and so on, but they stand sort of at the uh, intersection of these larger cities and global processes of urbanization and what it means to be rural. And so when you live in a village, these small cities are some of the most fundamental ways in which people interact with and understand what it means to be urban. I think urban has always really... Um, uh, the rural has always been defined, not always, but I think in the modern developmental era at least been defined in reference to the urban quite often, where the urban is the place where economic growth is supposed to happen, and that's supposed to trickle down to rural areas. Now, obviously, that's often not been the case. Um, but I think that uh, sometimes aspects of these aspirations and what it means to be urban do inform how people envision uh, their their lives, their life prospects, what they seek to do. Um, so one uh, so one thing I've done is I've talked extensively with people across this village where I've been working for the past eight years of many different ages to try to understand how they understand this idea of development and how it's infor been informed by these longer histories of how they interact with uh, people in the village and also outside of the village. Um, when we look in the early post-colonial era, when I'm talking to um, some of these older men in the village, they remember a time where if you wanted to get to a nearby urban center, I mean these small provincial towns, they're not big urban centers, um, you had, there wasn't a road into the village. You had to walk for hours over these high mountains, and that's what you would do to go get supplies. Um, the... And obviously, you didn't do that very often, so your life was very much contained within this smaller urban or a rural area that was your community and your caste and, and your village, basically. Um, what has happened in this area over the past 50 years or so has been really a tremendous change in how people understand uh, and interact with with the urban. So these small regional towns have grown tremendously. Part of that is because of the, um, the growth of the bureaucracy, which is itself part of um, the larger process of urbanization, the taxation. It's funded by taxation from um, growth, predominantly in larger urban areas. Um, but these, the, the growing of the bureaucracy and of administrative centers is also fueled um, small town uh, a small town consumptive economy that's becoming increasingly cosmopolitan has many different kinds of um, you know increasingly national chains that that um, come to to these smaller towns and what has happened over time is that the village has become connected to the 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 town 
they have regular bus service now. So people, they don't necessarily walk for hours over the, the mountains to get to the town. They can just hop on a bus and get there. So the intensity of interaction is, is quite a bit stronger than, than it once was. A lot of the younger generations, they go there every day. They go to the towns um, to, to go to college. They go to go visit their friends that they met in college. Um, and it's a di they enter these very different sort of social worlds as what they're permitted to do, with, whether it's you know guys hanging out with girls and so on that they're not able to do in the village, but also aspirations for what does modernity and progress mean. And what I think we're seeing is a very interesting thing in some rural areas where the rural is increasingly becoming um, urban in some, it, it, it's, it retains its rural character, but it gains some characteristics of what it means to be urban. And, and it's increasingly cosmopolitan and has this, uh, you know, these market centers that enable these um, uh, growth and uh, uh, consumption and so on. Um, and that's, uh, that's changing that's changing what people aspire for in their lives, for better or for worse. Um, so I think that's one of the big things. Um, that is accompanied with increasing amount of migration to uh, urban centers where people find employment there. Many of them eventually come home um, and live back in the village, not necessarily the case. So what you have is this blurring of what it means to be rural and urban. And I think in the process of development, as more facilities end up in rural areas, not the case universally across South Asia, of course, but in areas where that's happening, people are increasingly going back to the village. And that's a part of what progress and modernity may be. Actually, in a, in a sense, revisiting this, this rural imaginary where people go back to the village and sort of uh, get reacquainted with their roots. So. And, that, and that neatly brings us into that, you know, um, I suppose, planetary urbanization thesis of Honoré the Thurve and and more recently, Neil, um, Neil Brennan to sort of tell us that there is no, there is no essential category of urban and rural anymore to think of, um, and you're watching it. You're watching it actually happen. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, whereas we sort of, you know, it bleeds into into life. But I was going to ask us to move to Australia. I was going to ask Michelle to tell us well, what what can we what can we learn about the Asian urbanisation experience, the South Asian urbanisation experience for daily life, and how in your research is that being lived by people who have chosen to come here and often chosen to have very suburban lives yeah. in, thanks. in an Australian tradition? Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. And I hope you don't mind if I read. because I. So thanks a lot. Uh, I, I mean, I'm really happy to be in this beautiful space. It really moves me. It sort of reminds <laughs> me of uh, what I would call a cha dukan in Kolkata, which is like a tea shop, but a very elaborate one, or maybe a puja pandal. So... Yeah, so given my interest, as Andrew was saying, in belonging and diversity in Australian suburbia, I'll, I'll sort of start with a poem, which I call The Stream of Life. It's from Rabindranath Tagore. It says, the same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day, runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measures. It is the same life that shoots in joy through the dust of the earth in numberless blades of grass and breaks into tumultuous waves of leaves and flowers. It is the same life that is rocked in the ocean cradle of birth and of death, in ebb and flow. I feel my limbs are made glorious by the touch of this world of life, and my pride is from the life throb of ages dancing in my blood this moment. So in this verse, Rabindranath Tagore, 
poet and winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, draws attention to the vitality and the affirmation of life. And this is the life that runs through human, but also more than human worlds, and brings together city spaces here in Australia, but there across the Indian Ocean for the diverse South Asian diaspora. It's migrant newcomers, including asylum seekers and refugees, students, skilled professionals, but also permanent residents and Australian citizens who do a, a diversity of jobs. So sort of these lines by Tagore actually stimulate me to think about home and the struggle to belong in Australian cities in the context of wider debates, debates about sustainable development and planetary urbanization that draw attention to the economic, social, and environmental impacts of cities, or debates on the Anthropocene, a geologic era where the actions of humanity have emerged as a planetary force that alerts us to an impending ecological crisis. So when the future of humans and other species are severely threatened, we need to think and act differently. It calls for different ways of living in Australian cities, or new ways of thinking about place, being, belonging, and shared coexistence that transforms our relationship to the Earth. But how is it possible to feel embedded in this Earth when visceral everyday racism takes us by surprise and the subtleties of white privilege brings on anger, disappointment, and stress that fatigues migrant bodies in schools, workplaces, and public spaces? In multicultural cities, when doubts, fears, and anxieties collide, how can our dreams and hopes of belonging together surface and be articulated to produce city spaces that are breathable and welcoming? Perhaps suburban life can provide some answers. In Melbourne, suburbs like the city of Greater Dandenong, where our family lived in a rental property for a few years and Hampton Park, where I now live in the city of Casey, are places that provide affordable housing to migrant newcomers from South Asia, but also Middle East and Africa, countries in Africa. So there's private rental housing, there's public housing, and many residents are first home buyers. Although these suburbs have skeletal public transport, factories and warehouses, and often described as culturally diverse and socioeconomically disadvantaged, and sometimes also in the middle of nowhere. They're very different from home in South Asia, bustling South Asian cities, but they are places where migrants sense welcome. So for youth who have recently arrived, in particular international students, those who work as taxi drivers, bus drivers, cleaners, aged care workers, home is sometimes a dilapidated two-bedroom weatherboard house, where people come and go and sleep in shifts. Although there are tensions, there is interdependence and there's responsibility to welcome strangers. And this emerges through a very frugal lifestyle that shows continuity with life in Asian cities. But suburban life is also about conversations with neighbors over the fence, banter at Dandenong Market, hanging out at Afghan Bazaar, shopping at India Village, and just participating in festivals such as Diwali, Eid, and Holi. So sort of these ways of life contribute to what has been called an urban unconscious that enables a diverse South Asian diaspora 
to see themselves as part of the city and see the city as part of themselves. So in this way, public spaces of Australian cities can begin to acquire multiple skins and emerge as visceral spaces with depth that express diversity and inclusion. And I think this is the kind of sensibility that B. Joy Jane speaks of in creating this space inspired by law or traditional knowledge that radiates its energy outward. It sort of also reminds me about what an urban scholar, Andy Merrifield, once said about spaces like this where we all come together. They're places of encounter. They're nodes of intensity. And they're spaces where there's incandescent light. And I was thinking of incandescent light, but I was thinking of this lovely filtering of light right through, which is so beautiful. So a different kind of energy. Well, what of housing aspirations of South Asian migrants and their families, popular perceived as rich, hardworking, well-educated professionals? Perhaps their handcrafted walnut wood furniture from Kashmir, mirror work cushion covers from Rajasthan, clock lanterns from Goa, keep the connection to a home far away. In their struggle to belong and become model minorities with a cosmopolitan sensibility, sometimes they move away from a frugal Australian way of life. And so there's this desire to express success through lifestyle choices and housing aspirations. And these can cause nimbyism, envy, and anxiety. So anxiety circulates when urban futures are uncertain and is exacerbated with speculative urbanism. You know, investment properties, apartments in the inner city, and McMansions in the, in the suburbs. And these result in evaluative judgments of excess rather than care and responsibility. So these McMansions welcome relatives who often stay for a year. And however, they also pro provide a feeling of what has been called existential mobility. You feel like, I think Hassan Haj used that term, you feel like you're moving. One feels one is moving, doing well. So the house becomes a material expression and a symbol of success. And it helps in negotiating periods of unemployment or underemployment. But then in the struggle to, to belong, perhaps members of the South Asian diaspora risk being framed within familiar global but xenophobic narratives of migrants as usurpers and threats to public life. Perhaps such narratives of exclusion are sensed when after 30 years of living in Australia, South Asian migrants yearn to return to this imaginary and inclusive home on the other side of the Indian Ocean. Few minutes now? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so given these tensions that generate anxiety and affect belonging, how is it possible to draw on diverse knowledges that can inform policies of shared living that is about cooperation, responsibility, care for the world, and an intergenerational ethics. Although the demand is for knowledge that can be encapsulated and valued, what I've been really trying to do is perhaps illuminate a region of thought, to think about urbanism that can be transformative rather than based on anxiety and evaluative judgments. 
So I just want to end with this because it, thinking about such urbanism calls for creation of concepts and action that acts as a lure for feeling, that brings aesthetic delight rather than aesthetic anxiety. So for philosopher Alfred Whitehead, this lure for feeling is about a different way of feeling the world that displaces more narrow notions of feeling that is about judgment. It sort of mobilizes ethical responsibility through creative action that values the diversity of human but also non-human worlds and indigenous histories that enable us to think and feel with the earth. So law, as uh, Bijoy Jain says, and Leo, these shift, these two can work together to shift habits of thought and maybe new ways that we can belong together. Thanks. Thanks, Michelle. Um, I, I, I'm going to have questions in a second, but I'm going to ask one first to Peter, which is then Michelle, I think, challenged us to think that there's reasons why suburbia creates safety for new migrant groups. But in a sense, we've spent a lot of time in Australian urban planning, particularly trying to uh, you know, destroy, denigrate, densify, um, you know, uh, and, and obviously aspirations um, in Australian cities have changed to different forms of you know, high density and the like. What do you see as the, the future of suburbia, particularly how it, and, and particularly how it might relate to the way new immigrants learn the patterns of being suburban or in fact teach us new ways to be suburban? Yeah, the, um, the change has been that the knowledge economy, uh, which is where most of the creative, innovative jobs happen, are in central cities and inner areas. Mm sometimes along railway lines in the old transit city, but not in the car-based suburbs, not in the shopping centres. So there, I think we would have seen a significant decline in our outer suburban areas if we hadn't had migration. Because all of the educated young people like everyone here you live in Carlton and, and inner suburbs and so on. The, the, the move back into the city is a universal phenomenon amongst developed cities uh, seeking the knowledge economy jobs, which are close and you do not want to be travelling an hour and a half a day. Uh, it, so the regeneration of the central and inner areas of cities around the world has been happening very rapidly based on this, these, the, the new economy, the 21st century economy. So um, I, I, I like to think of the Punjabis who've come here after the diaspora, which came from the 80s and millions of them scattering around the world and taking up taxi driving and bus driving mostly. Um, and. I must have interviewed 500 of them by now in the taxis I've travelled in. <laughs> and they all have the same story. Basically, they came here as a student. They, after five minutes, turned to taxi driving. After a few weeks, they um, married uh, uh, the, the wife back in... Uh, uh, no, first of all, they, they bought a house. As quickly as anything, bought a house <laughs> in the outer suburbs. Then they go back and get the bride with a, an arranged marriage and a a wedding that costs $30,000 and, 
and ride white horse and become um, uh, do everything right in India. And then you come back, bring the wife, and six weeks later you got three kids, and you know they they have become absolutely amazing Australian suburbanites. They have all of the ideals of it because they do a lot of the work in these suburbs that that uh, us trendies have moved into the inner city won't do. And the wife stays at home and then looks after the kids and the kids are all filling the schools and uh, the, 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 sub the suburbs have been enabled. So uh, it's a bit like the show last night, Australian story about the Mindula, was it? The, the, the uh, small country town in New South Wales where Africans are going because they fit in a rural set setting um, and, and their skills and their ability to work is um, uh, enabled. But for Indians and, and the whole South Asian region, they have rejuvenated and, and enabled our suburbs. And I think we, um, we, um, we, we owe them a debt um, because those suburbs could rapidly decline otherwise. Trevor, you had a comment before I go to questions? Yeah, I, can I have a crack at this one? I know yeah. that um, David Nichols has put this in populist terms lately, is it? Uh, yeah. It's just hipsters trying to have a crack at bogans. But, uh, there's nothing wrong with bogan culture and stick it up the hipsters because they don't know what's good for them anyway. Um, well, Marx said many things that were wrong, in fact, but one of the things he did say, which I think still resonates with us, is that we are free to choose but not under circumstances of our choosing. And as Henry Ford said, you can have any type or any colour uh, Model T Ford as long as it's black. So I think the main syndrome of, the main achievement of, of modern uh, mass production is an extraordinary capacity to, to keep producing and spread it out wherever you go. So we've got the same issue, whether it's sky scraping apartments or bungalows, in, which is, of course, a Gujarati word for a Bengali invention, the bungalow, um, right throughout the suburbs. But the issue is that it's not simply a matter of consumer choice. It's being produced in certain forms. And so the question is, what constitutes good design? What constitutes sustainable design? What constitutes the right mix and complexity? How do we produce cities which have a variety of possibilities within them? And Australia's greatest experiment since World War II has been in very low-density automobile-based suburbia. And it's been an experiment based on the, predicated on the notion that everyone can aspire to participate in our society as a citizen who owns their own home. Now, I don't think anyone has argued that in the last 20 years as a sustainable political vision. Our politicians are scrabbling around trying to find other ways of talking about participation in our society. And so we're in a kind of interesting moment of crisis. Of course, people aspire to participate and join in on what is deemed to be the norm of a society. So what could be better sign of success if you've come to Australia than to be in a big McMansion in a suburban setting? But is that sustainable for all of us? I think the I think we can safely say no. And is that sustainable in any other city in the world? No. So we've got some really interesting challenges and choices, and our circumstances aren't how we've chosen them. This is the way we are, 
now we've got to make some decisions about how we can improve it. I just want to add to that, and that's really what what I was trying to say, is that there's this whole idea of fitting in to a normative Australian way of life. Mm. But we know that there is a frugal Australian way of life. But I think this is where the tension lies. Time and away. An ostentatious one or a frugal one. But they they kind of move between comfortably. After some comments or questions that people might have um, for anyone here or some comments you want to make, and we've got a roving mic, I think, have we? So, hi, yes, the man in the black and white blanket. <laughs> hey, guys. Um, yeah, really fascinating. Um, I was actually born in New Zealand, so I find the whole migrant story, um, I think, really fascinating. Again, again, very similar experiences, but also very different experiences with, like, what expectations are and legal rights as well, but that's for another time. Um, I'm really interested in your last point um, about the idea of the buy into the Australian dream. And as a populist in a society that's had that, you know, 20th, now 21st century vision of, you know, your home is your castle, how will that change the national narrative and the hopes and aspirations of the citizens if we do go to, say, a German or Scandic model where home ownership's only 40 or 50% of the population Mm. and what ramifications does that have, hey, as political, economic, um, Mm. because of our taxation Mm. system, you know, does preference home ownership compared to any other financial capital, but also just finally to make it really hard, um, again, that whole cultural buy-in as well because those Scandinavian countries are pretty monocultural compared to Australia. Not anymore. Oh, oh. (laughs) Go on. Oh, it's a fabulous question. Um, I'll have a crack at the first bit of the citizenship issue. Um, citizenship, uh, the great utopian, utopian promise of liberal democracy is that citizenship's an abstract concept. You are a member of a polity, you and I are members of the polity by virtue of being represented inside a particular geographical space. It doesn't matter what colour your skin is, how old or young you are, how abled or disabled you are, you are a citizen of a particular polity, you can participate. And so the question of population and territory is made associational, not in terms of ethnic nationalism or identity and so on. So Australia's nationalism is very thin. In fact, you could argue that we're not a nation state. We're simply a bunch of colonies that agreed to free trade between the colonies, the states, and a bit of protection against the rest of the world and organise the society as a whole. We can get on with the business of living. That's the great promise, in fact, because it offers multicultural possibilities. The question of housing, employment, education, food, they're the basics that are necessary in any human society. We've got to get those basic needs right. So the promise was that if everyone had, every male had full employment. So it was a gendered notion of citizenship. Every male could have full employment, then you could have a house which would be in guaranteeing the rights of families to reproduce themselves in safety with public infrastructure. Australia is a series of state experiments. The guarantee of the Commonwealth is that the state does all the risk capital for the infrastructure of the cities. Now, all of those agreements, those social compacts, which made Australia a very successful small nation-state, have largely been un- unravelled in the last 30 years. And we're now thrashing about trying to find new forms of agreements 
without retreating to notions of communitarian logics of saying we're like this because that's what Australian values are and the rest of you stay out or whatever. So the notions of inclusion and exclusion, well, this is going to be very challenging as employment starts to become harder and harder for larger sections of the young members of society. We're moving into a post-industrial post post uh, economy. We've got to secure ways of being an egalitarian open society and housing and suburbia and the way in which our cities are working and not working will be front and square. And in inclusion and exclusion mm. rear their head at any moment when that sort of social contract mm. seems to break apart too, and which you were describing before. So they become quite useful devices in politics. Has anyone else got a comment or question they wanted to put to anyone here? And you can also just make a comment yourself. You don't can I just add, add to that yep, one sure. on the housing thing? I, I don't think inclusion and exclusion is, is a question of... Um, what kind of house you have. It used to be apartments were on higher density were rented and houses are owned. It's not the case anymore and it, it isn't necessary. You can be inclusive and have home ownership in higher density and that's happening very rapidly and certainly happening in Europe as well as home ownership is dramatically increasing. But uh, I, I do think the, um, the questions that, that Trevor's raised about the social compact are still fundamental, but we can, we can we, and we have to rediscover them. And, and, uh, and that's, um, that's, all, that's something that has to be done in every generation. Um, we just have to do it now around different ways of doing sustainability. I'll just give you one quick example of something emerging. When you have solar energy, you can have it in your own home and just say, oh, I, I couldn't care now about energy, I'm going to make it myself and just sort of be self-sufficient. Well, it's almost impossible to do that. But now medium density developments are happening with solar energy and batteries. How do you manage that? Strata title companies are now going to manage energy as well as the, you know, the common areas of, of medium density development. So what we're seeing is what we're calling citizen utilities forming in the suburbs. Citizen utilities are a new social compact, a way in which you have a community interest, which is something you benefit from and can gain from in terms of being able to sell electricity out into other markets. Uh, and there's new software that helps that happen. But it is all based on the fact that people need to work together in our cities. That's a new way of doing things. It's much more sustainable. And uh, I think it's a much better model than the utilities gave us with massive power stations going over long distances, which, um, and then you just a consumer. That's all you do. You are now going to be part of a community that creates its own power and shares it, and manages it together. That's, that's emerging, it's, it's, and Australia can do that probably quicker than anywhere else because we've got more sun and more money at the moment to enable this new growth to happen. It requires us to have a sort of a commitment to a shared Absolutely. responsibility though of, um, and a 
something that the individualist model of suburbia yeah. is often well against. Well, in the suburbs, we have all kinds of community things that happen with, you know, sporting groups, uh, school communities and so on. They all, you know, that, that the suburbs are, survive on that. And it's just another one. And, and it's, a, I think, a, a very important transition that we're going to go into. We, we will have to reinvent our cities around new social compacts. Can, can I ask a question, question at the, the front? front? I have a question at the front first, Trevor. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask um, how willing are Australian policymakers and academics um, to embrace um, sort of other forms of urbanism and suburbanism, for example, from Asia, or is there a sense that this is a threat to Western supremacy, particularly in the fields of consultancy, intellectual transfer of knowledge, uh, and the place of Western thinking in the world? Who wants to take That's that on? Good question. I, I think I'll, I'll just leap in with a bit. Um, one of the ways in which our cities are being rebuilt is with these denser forms of living so people can have access to the new economy. That's essentially what's happening and it is underwritten by Chinese money. There's no question that the investing, you have to get a certain number of people investing in a development otherwise they don't get the money to build it and they are underwritten mostly these days by a lot of Chinese money that's coming to Australia. Um, now, I personally think that's an incredibly good thing that we're getting out of it. Um, in the suburbs, there's an awful lot of uh, fear about having too much uh, Chinese investment coming and in, in pushing the prices up and so young people can't buy houses. But um, most of that is, is fear, I think, and, and, and not very real, realistic. Uh, if we're going to have redevelopment you need investors and at the moment there's a lot of that is coming from china and i, I would welcome it the second part of the question though is about the expertise and cultures mm. of being urban trans, yeah. trans, mm. translating to australian mm. life as well wasn't it and how yeah. that's taken and I, I don't know if who wants to comment on trevor do you want to comment well, on that? Crack it at, uh, um, there are elite elite cultures, cultural exchange and technological transfer, where people are working together to solve problems. So whether you're architects, engineers, scientists and so on. So what we need in terms of South Asia and Australia, I think, is greater meshing of the elite cultures over sustained periods of time where problems are worked on together. So we're only now starting to grasp that that's the next generation's task here, is to start thinking about the amount of traffic that's happening between the subcontinent and various regions of Australia. So, for example, how much thinking has been done in Victoria that whilst Punjabi Sikh migration into Victoria is very significant, so what does that mean in terms of family capitalism, networking, knowledge of agrarian um, production in in ecologies which are not dissimilar to the Murray-Darling Basin in, uh, around the Punjab. They're both food baskets, irrigation, etc. Um, how much thinking has been done about the fact that our major trading partner for the state of Victoria is Tamil Nadu? 
right? The Australian High Commission have over 10 full-time workers in Austrade in Chennai. And how many Victorians know that? How, many, how much thinking has there been done about what are the possibilities about learning from each other in dealing with our, our, our challenges? I had a brilliant student a couple of years ago. Actually, all our students are brilliant, but this one was particularly special. And she was doing a joint, she was doing an agricultural science degree and an anthropology degree at the same time. So she was doing a double degree. And she wrote an essay on comparing Kolkata's food sustainability with Shanghai. And what she showed in the space of 2,000 words, it was quite an extraordinary piece of work, was that because there hadn't been an intense industrialization of the peasantry in Kolkata, Kolkata was still a self-sustaining city. From within the boundaries of the city, they were growing their own food still, and they were able to produce locally. Shanghai with Mao, with his con contradictory policies about industrialization and, and the privileging of agrarian and the notion of the utopic peasant, destroyed the self-sustaining capacities of Shanghai and nothing is grown or, or made in Shanghai now. So she was able to show that two cities with supposedly historically similar developmental pathways actually had very different ones with very different outcomes. So the next question I think is something that Michelle is starting to talk about is vernacular innovations in suburbia where new migrant groups come in, they do different things. They, they do things which they did back home and the locals go, what do you do that for? And I can vividly remember in suburbia of Perth and Fremantle where people from Mediterranean backgrounds started growing vegetables and fruit in their front yards. And of course the moral economy of the Anglos was, how crazy is that? You do your veggies out the backyard, you don't do it in the front yard. And this major innovation has transformed our ways of thinking about the moral economy of gardens. And so we're having fightbacks about sustain, sustainability of gardening within suburbia. So, yeah. Michelle, I'm sure there are all sorts of experiments being done by folks from, that have migrated from South Asia in that sense. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. And we are sort of bringing that knowledge, transferring that knowledge. But what's really interesting is that I went back to Calcutta just last uh, Christmas and I noticed that, you know, what we were experiencing and what Australia, the U.S. was experiencing in terms of suburban malls and large mm -hmm. gated communities, that's what's happening now in Kolkata. So, like, mm -hmm. something else is happening, you know. You're trying to transfer yes. the knowledge from there here. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there, there is suddenly an expectation. And it's and you don't get the corner shop anymore. Mm -hmm. You've got to go to a small little, uh, you know, department store. So... And people like me, perhaps, who've been here for about 16 years, is that you have these memories of, of, of Calcutta or the city, and you go back and you say, my God, this is like Australia, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit different. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now, if we've reached our time limit, so unless someone's got something they want to make a comment on, either from the panel or from the floor, um, and otherwise you can ask someone while they're having their um, ginger beer later on. <laughs> so there's, there's oh, you're taking a photograph okay very good all right well thanks a lot i'd like to thank trevor harry peter and michelle for their time and for you for listening and certainly i think there's a lot more to think about in terms of how australian urban change is not just occurring as a material process but as a cultural process particularly with with immigrant groups and how that the last comment you made of course is that we see that going, there's counterflows for every flow. 
Um, and so we, we're seeing that as a global process. And I think that's something we've always got to keep in mind that, that there's always local context, but it's almost always set within a big global flow. So maybe we'll leave it at that tonight as we step out into our Calcutta yeah. tea hut. <laughs> <laughs> <Charge the> <laughs>